morning, fellas. Uh, go ahead and have a seat. So before we begin, I just want to thank Jared and Eric and Peter and Thomas and Paul and Freddie and David and Freddie, um, Blake and Bobby, um, Angie Mosier and Nate Wagnon. There's a, there's a lot of people working hard to put this all together. We just show up and, and get to be served, but there's a lot of folks that are serving well for us. And so we're grateful for that. Uh, this morning, I want to play a quick guessing game. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to have a little game. You can keep your own score. There's three questions, and they're increasingly worth points. So one point, five points, ten points for these three questions. And uh, we're going to go ahead. This is kind of, kind of be a speed round. And you can either say this out loud or in your head of the guessing game. So here's number one. You got their names? Number two? Little, little harder. And then here's the hardest one of them all, number three. That's harder because it might be a little embarrassing if you actually know the answer and you're a guy. You're up to, up to speed on British culture. Now, there's a bonus round. Here's the last one. Who's that? Huh. Snoop Dogg? Which one? Which one's Snoop Dogg? You see, those three or four images that you just saw, every single one of them, aside from the Snoop Dogg on the left, are dead. They're not alive. They're made of aluminum piping, newspaper, and covered in wax. Those are from Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. And you know the one that's alive. How? How would you know the Snoop Dogg that's alive? The one that moves. Real similar to last week in that nasty dead fish and the betta fish. We know that faith is alive by its movement. That's how we know it. And so in this passage in James chapter 2, whereas last week we talked about faith without works is dead, demonic, and dysfunctional, this week James is going to give us a very similar presentation, except he's going to put skin on it. And he's going to say, that is the same thing as true. Faith without works is dead. You will know faith is alive and true by its movement. And I'll show you that, James will show you that, through the life of Abraham and Rahab. And so that's where we're going to be today in James 21 through 26. So on the next slide, um, we're going to talk a little bit about a review and then set up for this week. But uh, what I want to tell you at first is a little bit about me. And so I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. And Springfield, Missouri is home to the world headquarters of Bass Pro Shops. Now, for some of you, that just, that just triggered a salivation point in your mouth because you know what that means. Others, you don't. So let me tell you, that is an outdoorsman's paradise is what they call it. And it takes up more than an entire city block in Springfield, Missouri. It started off as a bait shop and now it's this huge uh, mecca for sportsmen and outdoorsmen. And so my sophomore year in college, I saved up some money and I walked in there to buy my very first shotgun of my own. And as a college student, what I could afford was a Remington Express, a Remington 870 Express pump action. I see some head nods. That's a gun you can get at Walmart. It's 200 bucks. It is basic. It's, it's your 95 Honda Accord, right? It's functional, but it's got no bells and whistles. And I can say that because that's what I'm driving these days. If, if some of you just felt insulted, it's a compliment. Uh, So I had that 870 Express, and because I was so intent on using it, 
I took it dove hunting, duck hunting, uh, rabbit hunting, and I told you I was from Missouri, squirrel hunting. <laughs> and yes, I ate the squirrel with honey barbecue sauce. But I would take that thing everywhere. I loved it. And I loved seeing it get more and more banged up because it was almost like a badge of honor that it had been used. And I'd take it apart in the field when it had mud on it. I mean, this is the kind of gun that they say you can use as a paddle if you get stuck. Like it's, it's, a, it's an invincible kind of gun that's intended to be used. It's a utility gun. Now, my fraternity brothers felt sorry for me because this thing was kind of ghetto. I had a shoestring tied around it for the sling and, and they'd laugh at me. It was a 20 gauge, but then I would knock down more birds than them and, and they wouldn't laugh as much. But by my senior year, they kind of got together and they bought me a Benelli Super Black Eagle 12 gauge semi-automatic. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, I just went from Honda Accord to Lamborghini or Ferrari, or whatever you might put in that category. Like, like it was crazy. I couldn't believe it. And guess what? I never once hunted with that shotgun. Because to me, it was, it was too nice. It was too valuable. I was so concerned about that shotgun. It got a scratch on it one time when I was moving, And I sat there and buffed and polished that thing with the beautiful stock and everything, the insignia of Benelli from Italy, because I was so overly concerned about it that I never even took it into the field. Because of how concerned I was about its care and its upkeep and its beauty, and that I didn't didn't want to tarnish it by, by using it for the very purpose it was created to do. It was not made to be oiled and put in my closet. It was made to knock down birds. It had a function. But it didn't function that way because I cared too much about it. And I think that's what James is going to tell us in this passage about our obedience. And it's a problem. It's been a problem. It continues to be a problem in my life. And I suspect I'm not the only one in the room who, when I get so overly concerned about myself and my money, and my time, and my family, and my things, and my free time, and my house, and my priorities, overly concerned that all of a sudden I am not functioning in the purpose that God created me for. We're just going around looking out for for us and ours, not for the very thing that God created us for, obedience. Now this would be the great miss is that if we walked out of here at the closing of James and said, all right, I get the message. Don't be here is the word, but be doers. And now we closed out on obedience. Be a good shotgun. I'm going to go out and get it done. That would be a tragedy. Because, because that's not the aim. If it were, then Oprah, all the Muslims, Mark Zuckerberg, and the Pharisees would be on point because they're all doing works. But rather, it's out of an abiding overflow of our love for God. Not, not as slaves that are driven by obligation and fear, but as sons who have been rescued and redeemed and out of an overflowing love and gratitude, we say, God, my life is yours. Use me for your purposes. No longer my will, your will be done. 
You got my time, my money, my occupation, my family, everything. I'm yours. The words that come out of my mouth, I'm yours. Use me for the purposes you created me for, that intended purpose. That's what it is. That's Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, his saving grace through Jesus on the cross, raised again, that we would present our lives, everything, as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to God to know his will, to do it. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. The word spiritual right there is logikos in Greek. It's the logical response. Him having saved you, that you would give your life over to him. So today is a message to sons about obedience, out of an, out of an overflow of love and gratitude that he rescued us We used to see this in cartoons and sitcoms and TV shows, Gilligan's Island and whatnot. When someone would rescue someone's life, they'd fall down and say, you saved my life, now my life is yours. I'll be your servant forever. And they'd follow them around and and they'd be at their beckoning call. That's us. We've been rescued. And now we, we serve our master out of love and gratitude. So let's move through this. Here's, here's kind of an overflow or an overview of today. We're talking about obedience, and to break it down is that obedience is according to God's game plan. It's for our good, not God's good, for our good and not God's good, and it's for his glory and not ours. So obedience is according to God's game plan, not ours. It's for our good and not his, and it's for his glory and not ours. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I think that uh, here's why this is important to me and why it resonates. When I got married, I, uh, I knew I was supposed to serve my wife. I'm supposed to do the dishes, bring her coffee, whatever it is, like clean up, uh, assist, serve her, love her as Christ loved the church. And I was good at it because I can do really well. But the problem was, is as I was doing it, I, I was so angry and upset, and I, was, I had a ledger. Well, I'm doing this much today, and what have you done? And, and your title's helpmate, so what, it's fuzzy math. I think I'm doing more. And I had to memorize 1 Peter 4, 9, which says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because I was doing the work, but my heart wasn't in it. My heart was far from her. In fact, it was embittered. So this is a loving response. This is out of, out of love that we do this. Because frankly, God doesn't just want our arbitrary works. What he wants is our heart. And he'll get that through our works, which show that our faith is alive and well. All right, so let's get to the first one. Obedience is according to God's game plan. Game plan defined is a strategy for achieving an objective. And so what we have to understand is that we're, we're intent on God's objective, not our own. And that's critical. And that's every day of our life. Not just macro level of my life, but like today. That I'm operating by God's game plan and what he would have for me today. And some of that has been revealed through his word. Other parts of it will be revealed through the circumstances that you're faced with today as you walk that out. My soccer coach, I, I grew up playing soccer from five through college. Uh, don't mistake me, that was intramurals, um, not collegiate. But uh, my soccer coach in high school always would, I, I can hear it in my mind, him screaming, play your position, play your position. 
because a halfback or, or me as the sweeper or a striker or, or forward, whatever, would, would get to be a glory thief and just start chasing down the ball in a place where he didn't belong. He was pulled out of position, which would leave a, a big gaping hole in the middle where the other team could then fall in. And when they get possession, it's trouble. And so I can hear him screaming, play your position, play your position, play your position. And the reason why that's important to us and what God's asking for us is that he says in 1 Corinthians 12 and in various other passages, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, that we've been given spiritual gifts, each and every one of us. If we're in Christ, he's assigned and given you a gift, a talent given by God. And he is keen on you using that and playing your position. Because if you don't, that part of the body starts to not function, and then there's that gapping hole, gaping hole, because that position's not being played. He'll find somebody else to play it. He'll, he'll slot someone there. But we would miss the opportunity then to play according to God's game plan. Something else that you could say is that you can suit up in the uniform and still not play. I've told you guys about my rebellious years. When that was going on, I was wearing my James Avery ring, cross around my neck, hosting a college fraternity Bible study in my house. I mean, I was, I was, I had the team uniform on, but it was very evident that I was not playing for the team. I was playing against the team, frankly. I was, I was hurting the team and my faith was anything but alive and active And so don't just be ones that would suit up, ones that would come to Summit, have your Bible on the shelf, but not read. Give a kind word here, but when you're at home, give a harsh, abusive word to your wife. Be one that suits up and plays, that runs God's game plan. 1 Peter 4.10 says that each one should use the gift that he's been given, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. God will administer his grace through us. We're conduits of his grace. That means that the world out there who's not sitting here with us this morning, they can experience God's grace through you if we're willing, if we'll play according to God's game plan and not our own. Proverbs 10.26 says, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. If we're not doing what God has us to be doing, like my Benelli shotgun that just sat and cared about itself, and we, we, we are a nuisance and a distraction, vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes rather than performing the function that we were created to do. So what about James? Abraham and Isaac. Abraham didn't run God's game plan for much of his life. He was told, leave your family, go to the land I will show you. And he didn't. (laughs) He brought his family, and then he got scared and went down to Egypt, lied there to the king and said, no, she's my sister, which put her in grave danger. And then when he came back out, God says, I'm going to give you a son. And he said, maybe. I'll, I'll see if what you meant was sleep with another woman. So he sleeps with Hagar, not running God's game plan. But here in James... He shows, now, I, now I've got your heart. Now you're running my game plan. 
Because God says to him, go and sacrifice your only son whom you love on the mountain that I will show you. And it says that Abraham arose the next morning and took his son with wood on his back and climbed up the mountain and laid his son down to sacrifice him. And James says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Justified by works, meaning was not his faith evidenced and proven, demonstrated, visibly seen by the movement it was shown. In Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed God, his promises. I believe you. It was credited to him as righteousness. But that, that invisible faith was seen when he took Isaac and laid him down. And God said that it was a test. And he says, now I know, now I know before you told me and I knew, but now I see it by you laying down Isaac. And he says, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold from me your only son. This became uh, just one example tangible to me when I told you breaking and entering, I I broke into a, a lady's house that I used to rent and threw a party, smashed out a chandelier and that was not my faith. That was, that was wearing the uniform, but not playing God's game plan. And then I, uh, when God got a hold of my heart, I walked down to the, her place of business with money in my pocket. And, I, and she was kind of mean, frankly, because I was probably a jerk. But I went to her and I said, hey, I, I broke into your house. I threw a party. I smashed out your property. And I, I understand if you want to press charges and, and I have the money to replace it. I, you know, I was an alcoholic and a, and a terrible tenant and blah, blah, blah. And um, there was forgiveness and grace. And for me, that was a, that was a laying down of an Isaac because I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. Abraham did that, it says in Hebrews, because he reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. He's like, you're telling me to sacrifice my son? You said you're going to bring about blessings to all the nations through my son? So I don't, I, I don't know how to reconcile that you're saying, sacrifice your son, and yet you're also going to bless every nation through him. But all right, God. I trust you. I'll walk that out in obedience according to your game plan and not mine. On the next slide, we have obedience is for our good, not God's. God doesn't need our time, treasure, or talents. He doesn't need them. In Acts 17, it says that God is not served by human hands. He gives man life, breath, and everything else. He doesn't, he doesn't need what we could give him. Psalm 50 says, I don't, I don't eat blood or drink or, or eat bulls and drink the blood of goats. That's, that's not what I do. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What I want is thanksgiving and for you to fill your vow and then bring me glory by fulfilling your role. That's what he says in Psalm 50. And so God wasn't, he didn't want Isaac. He wanted Abraham's heart. And that's the same thing for us with, with our obedience that's what he wants. I was babysitting these, these two little girls once, and I had a, one of those giant cookies. And I, I gave it to one, the big sister, and I said, you know, break the cookie in half and share it with your sister. And she broke that thing like in, in an eighth. And I said, well, in our rule, whoever breaks it, the other person gets to choose. And she very quickly like rebroke it and made equal parts. And it wasn't because I could not give her more cookies. I mean, I, there was ice cream in the fridge. I can get, I've got money in the bank. I can get thousands of cookies to give to these girls. It it, it wasn't about them um, having the cookie. It was about teaching them to share and love one another so that they wouldn't grow up and be greedy little brats, right? The difference is now we have bank accounts, time, 
talents. And God's saying, go on. I want you to share that. Not because he needs our money, but because he doesn't want us to grow up and be greedy little brats. And so as we consider cutting the check or giving our time for our, our widow neighbor that we're annoyed by every time she walks up, rather being like, I understand, God, I'm, I'm here to minister your grace, and this is for my good, so that you would keep me from myself and my sin, that I would be blessed. Obedience also breaks down our idols. When I confess my sin to my wife, my community group, my boss, that breaks down my idol of pride. And so obedience breaks down our idols. You see that with uh, Abraham before where he was disobedient. And then when he's willing to walk through that obedience, his idol of, I want a son, God, I want a son, I want a son, Sarah's too old, I want a son. All of a sudden he's like, God, I want you. I just want to obey you. Wife, son, promised land, I just want you. And God says, now I know you love me. Obedience breaks down our idols. Whatever's in your life, man, you just start following out God's plan. It will be for your good because you will no longer be enslaved to those idols. Finally, obedience is for God's glory and not ours. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that we are, God, we, are, we are Christ's ambassadors, that God was making his appeal through us that he was no longer counting men's sins against them, but instead has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So I don't care if you're a shoeshine boy or a stock trader or a doctor, whatever your occupation is, it's irrelevant. What you are, if you're in Christ, is an ambassador of Christ. You're there to represent your king. That's why he's put you in that sphere of influence. Paul was a tent maker. Abraham was a shepherd, David was a king, but they were all there as ambassadors to point to the one true God. So it doesn't matter what your job description is, your title, what your job description is as ambassador of Christ. That's why he has you there. It's for his glory and not yours as you walk out this obedience. And so we see Rahab's title, Rahab the prostitute. We think about our job, we want to put some identity in that. She was called Rahab the prostitute, not once, but in Joshua, in Hebrews, in James. God seems to emphasize that point. And so I think if we saw her in heaven, we'd be like, oh, Rahab, wife of Solomon, mother of Boaz, righteous woman who held the spies and delivered them out of the Canaanite hands of Jericho. And she would say, no, no, quit, quit buttering me up. I'm Rahab the prostitute. And I think she would say that with great joy because what that does is it brings glory to God. And she says, no, 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 no. Don't you forget who I am. I'm Rahab the prostitute. I'm John the alcoholic. This is not about my glory. It's not about Rahab. It's about God. Don't you ever forget who you were apart from Christ. And you give him all the glory. Psalm 115.1 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Never forget that you too are Rahab, the prostitute, in one various form as we hoard ourselves out to other things and God rescued us and said, but now you go and be my ambassador. 
Zero dark 30s on the screen. It's, uh, if you're offended by cuss words or stumble with that, don't watch it. But if you like uh, seeing an incredible mission, see it and be inspired by this. At the end of the movie, as they're seeking out Osama bin Laden, who was a mass murderer and an evil man, with their night vision on, going in stealth in Abbottabad, Pakistan, under the radar, on point, on mission from a commanding officer's game plan, working as a team, suited up and actually doing what they're intended to do, fulfilling that purpose. They accomplish their mission. And there's a phrase in there I never want you to forget. And some of the men in here are SEALs and served our country well. And they'll know this phrase. But he says, he radios back to D.C. and he says, Geronimo, for God and country. And like my heart, my wife's watching it and she's kind of interested. My heart's beating through my chest and I want to run through a wall. There's something in all of us that yearns for that, to be on that mission, to be in the battle, to do what we're created to do, to see justice done, to see evil overcome, to be able to say Geronimo for God and country. And it's what we are, men. We're in a war, and we will always be this side of eternity. It's a war. We're in a battle. It's a wartime environment, and we have an enemy, and it is daily on mission that the end of today, not just the pan-ultimate day of your life, but today that you could go to bed and pray and say, Geronimo, for God and your country, for God and your kingdom. That was for you. You're my commanding officer. According to your game plan, for my good, for your glory, what you had before me today on mission, on point, suited up in the game, in the action against the enemy, Geronimo, for God and for your country. Let's pray. Lord God, we're yours. We're your servants. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a game plan, that this is for our good and always, Lord, for your glory. Be glorified, Lord, your kingdom come. Amen.